yourself then with confidence, drawn near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to heaven in time of need. Today we're continuing our series entitled Draw Near. And Draw Near has been a reflection really on the Old Covenant relationship versus the New Covenant relationship. How the Old Covenant was based on laws and, and, and sacrificial, the sacrificial system, whereas the New, Test, New Covenant is based on the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and mostly what we've been focusing in on, and, and, and why I believe that this reflection is important, is because what it showed us is because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have this ability to draw near to our Heavenly Father. We have this opportunity to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that was not available through the Old Covenant that we now can enjoy because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been going through this, we've been looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, specifically the faith chapter. And what's beautiful about the reflection of the, the heroes of faith that we see in the faith chapter is that they show us the ability we have by faith to be even closer to our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus Christ did. And as we've been going through, we've been looking at the different examples, show, uh, different characters as an example of this faith that brings them into a deeper relationship. And we continue that today by picking up in verse 23, the story of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Now, I want to stop there real quick because there's something important that has been revealed in the sentence I just read that really speaks to everything we're reading in, in chapter 11 about these, these characters of the Old Testament. Did you notice what he said? He said he, would, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. Now, how is that possible? You guys know that Moses came before Christ, right? That, that the experience, the, the, the story, the life, the, the work of Jesus Christ came, came 1,500 years after Moses. But even here, we see that Moses' heart, Moses' understanding, Moses' expectation was focused in on Jesus Christ. That he knew about the promised Messiah and knew of, of God's eternal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that promise was more, was better than the temporal riches of Egypt. Part of, what the, part of what the author of Hebrews is revealing in this passage is something that we should understand, and that is this, that those people of faith in the Old Testament were putting their faith in the promised Messiah, not, not in the laws, not... Not in, not in the ritual. See, they understood the laws to be a placeholder for the grace that was to come through the promised Messiah that, that God had made, the promise God had made all the way back at the very beginning. 
In Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks of Abraham and says, He wasn't saved by the law, but by grace, by his faith in the promises of God. The, the most direct promise there that they're speaking of is the coming of the Messiah. And I want you to see what Peter writes about the vision of the prophets in Old Testament as he, as, as he writes in, in fir, the first chapter of 1 Peter. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It, is, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Peter's writing here and he's saying, I want you guys to understand that the prophets of old understood that there was a Messiah coming and that that's where their hope was, that's what their understanding was, that they realized that the work of God was not completed in the law. It was not completed in the ritual, but that it was to be completed by the Messiah when Jesus Christ came. Now, why did I stop here to, to, to kind of, to, to, to kind of uh, elucidate that idea for you? Because it's important for us to realize that we see in Scripture is this true. The means of salvation is and always has been a belief in the Christ, in Jesus Christ. The, the, from Genesis till the New Testament, the means of salvation was always faith in the coming Messiah. It was always faith in Jesus Christ. It's that the Old Testament covenant was a pointing to or was a placeholder that would reveal the superior need of Jesus that we've been exploring all throughout the book of Hebrews. As we walk through the faith hall of fame found in Hebrews chapter 11, this is important to keep in mind because it's all framed in that understanding they were always waiting for jesus now let's continue with the faith of moses by faith he left egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible by faith he kept the passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Would you join me as we pray for God's blessing on his word? Heavenly Father, we thank you that each one of us comes to this place with a desire to know you more deeply. And in that, what we're saying, Lord, is we want to have our faith strengthened. And so, Father, we just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word to our hearts and to our spirits. Father, I pray that whatever challenge is presented to us by your word, we would rise to that challenge and that your spirit through that would draw us nearer to you. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Now, as we've been going throughout this chapter specifically, it's really been important for us to understand the nature of biblical faith. And the reason why that's important is because there is such a misconception about faith, specifically, I think, in our American culture. For, for, for those who, who practice Christianity, for those who are Christian name only, or even for those who refuse the title of Christian but kind of embrace this, this nebulous, I'm spiritual but not religious category. Um, so many in each of these categories struggle to understand the concept of Christian faith. What we've done is we've, we've taken this idea of faith and we've, we've fashioned it in a way that kind of serves our needs and serves our wants. And really, ultimately what it does, is it lands us in a place where we have this new age idea where we basically say, if I just believe it enough, even though I don't see it, if I just believe it'll happen, then it's going to come to me at, right, at the right time. Whether we, whether we, make, whether we make God the, the, this kind of um, force behind the, the, the reception of the things that we are imagining, or we make it the universe. It's the same kind of faith, and it is a faith that is not what we speak about when we speak about biblical faith. We went a long way over the last several weeks to explain the foundation of biblical faith, the, the faith espoused by the author of Hebrews in this passage. We did it last week, and we did it the week before. But the most simple way to really describe what true biblical faith is, is this. It is not faith for something. It is faith in someone. Now, do you see how that, how that, that simple line creates a distinction between what so many people in our culture believe as faith versus what the Bible says faith is? It's not just believing for something to happen to you or for something to come to you. But it's believing in someone, and that someone is God. Now, why do I say that that is basic biblical faith? Well, we say it because the, the author of Hebrews in this faith chapter explains it in such a way. He said, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So as he's unfolding this idea about faith, he's like saying, listen guys, it is impossible to please God, and the way you please God in his declarations by drawing near to him, it's impossible to please him and drawing near to him by faith, and faith is believing that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So do you see that the central focus of biblical faith is 
someone. It's God. We get to this point where we need to understand the idea that our faith is in this simple idea. He is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he will do. That's biblical faith. And and at this point, as we read this passage, there is this continuing clarity to the nature of Christian faith that is available to us. This, This passage in particular, I think, is tremendously important for blowing the fog of confusion away from what faith is and what kind of life that faith guarantees. There are many out there who teach today that the life of faith will bring health and wealth and prosperity. And in contrast to that, they say where that health and wealth and prosperity doesn't exist, there's a lack of faith. That there is this clean equation in which if you live by faith, if you have enough faith, you will find prosperity, you will find wealth, you will find health. And where so many people then say, and if it's not there in your life, the problem is you just don't have enough faith. Do you understand how that becomes quickly a faith for something versus a faith in someone? As we look at this passage that we've read today, you begin to see that biblical faith is a faith that is not this clean equation. It actually has this dualistic nature about it. Because the first expression of Christian faith that is revealed in the passage we just read is that it is a faith to see the miracle. We have to believe in the God of the miracles. That is the starting point of Christian faith. One of the great, great, great truths of these miraculous deliverances described in the story of Moses and the Israelites we just read is they, they, they believed that they served a God who could deliver this. For many of us, we, we think about the stories of Moses and we think about the story of the Israelites and the ones that were kind of recounted here and then, and then even more than that. And we seem to kind of separate ourselves from what they were really believing for. Consider the, consider the idea of this. Here you have the Israelites who are, who are enslaved in Egypt. And, 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 and God speaks to Moses in the middle of the desert by himself. He's just this shepherd out there. He has no army. He has no military. He has no force whatsoever. And God says, I want you and Aaron to go back to Egypt and set the Israelites free, and I'll go with you. Have you ever noticed what a big call that is? What a big ask that is? He's saying, I want you to go, and the, most, and the strongest military of the day, I want you to walk into the Pharaoh's courts, and I want you to just say, Pharaoh, let my people go. It's a big ask. And so Moses goes and does it. And then when Moses goes to get that big ask, 
not with God explaining how it's all going to unfold. He doesn't know anything about the plagues. He doesn't know what Pharaoh's going to do. He doesn't know any of that story yet. He goes and he steps in and he says, God, God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, no. Duh. Right? And then he steps in and he begins to say, if you don't let him go, this is what's going to happen. He had the faith to believe the miraculous that when he said that the, the waters would turn to red, the waters would turn to red. He had faith to believe the miraculous that when he said the pestilence was going to come and he said the locust was going to come and he said the frogs were going to come, he believed that they would come because he had faith in the miraculous God that he served. When they came and said, if you do not relent, the firstborn child of all of Egypt will die, that the angel of death is going to pass over. He had to believe in the miraculous God, and not just for that, but he had to believe that when they took the blood and they put it on the doorposts of each, of each house, of all of the children of Israel, that that angel of death would not touch anyone in that room. Imagine sitting there in the midst of that darkness and seeing the death all around you and know that the miraculous God you serve was going to spare you. They had to have this type of faith for the miraculous. One of the great limiting factors is that we don't really believe that God is that God. That we don't really believe that God is the God that does the miraculous, that does the supernatural, that is the God that delivers us. We pray prayers that are limited by our unbelief. We engage in prayers that are dripping with unbelief. We approach our Christian expression with a limited view of, of, of the power and ability of God. And for many of us, we do that from this place of really faux uh, humility. We step in these places like, well, God, maybe, maybe, kind of, he could, I don't know, but if not, you know, whatever. And really, most of that is really rooted in this fact that deep down, we really, 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 really aren't convinced that a miraculous God will visit us in a miraculous way. And so we limit our prayers to that which makes the most sense. And what I want you to understand here is what we're talking about is a heart and a mind and a spirit posture that embraces the truth of who God is as all-powerful, as redeemer, as deliverer, as healer. Now, now remember the starting point of what we just saw, that the biblical idea of faith is. The biblical idea of faith is, is that we believe in who God says he is and that he is a faithful rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he does what he says he'll do. Doesn't he say he's healer? Doesn't he say he's deliverer? Doesn't he say he's provider? That's who he says he is. And the question is, do we actually believe it? The starting point is your faith is the belief that he truly is who he says he is and does what he says he'll do. And one of the first reasons why I believe that this is so important 
is that this faith in God as that animates our spiritual disciplines. It engages you so much more deeply in the practice of Christian discipline. And what do I mean by that? Let's start with the concept of prayer. How many of you struggle to pray? How many of you find yourself in a situation where it is really, really hard to pray? Just be honest with yourself. How many of you really struggle with prayer? The truth of the matter is, for many of us in, 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 in America today, um, it, is, it is a part of our Christian experience to really struggle with taking two minutes or three minutes or five minutes or ten minutes or fifteen minutes a day to go, go into prayer. There are many of you, you come into this place and you're not here for the pre-service prayer and so the only prayer real experience you're taking is when Pastor Tommy says, would you bow your head with me as we pray? And so you bow your head and some of you listen to what I'm saying and some of you are thinking about the Super Bowl tonight. But many of us struggle in our prayer lives. And that's, that's a consistent, if you're sitting here in this room and you're feeling that, understand, I'm not, you're not alone in this. And that's why I'm talking about this. One of the statistics that I've given before in the past that I, that I heard a long time ago is that the average American pastor prays eight minutes a week. Pastors. Do you understand that we as pastors we get paid to pray, right? Like, seriously. Like, like, if I came to you guys as the people who contribute to this church and from which I draw my salary and that, if I came to you and I said, hey, guys, I just want you to know, I go into my office every single day and I spend three hours every single day in prayer, would any of you be upset with that? You'd be like, awesome. Our pastor prays three hours every day in the middle of the day. None of you can do that at your job, can you? And yet pastors who get, prayed to do, get paid to do this pray an average of a minute and a half a day. One of the reasons why we as Christians struggle to pray is because we do not have a big enough vision and a big enough view of what God will do when we pray. I have seen God do over and over and over again the supernatural. He heals. And what each one of us needs to understand is that he delivers, that, that he sets people free in a miraculous way. We've had the testimony here over and over again. We had one of our, one of our members from our congregation who's going off on the mission field. They were just here a couple weeks ago, and they were testifying to each one of us the idea of how when, when they, were both, they were both diagnosed as being infertile, that neither one of them had the medical ability to get pregnant. And immediately going from that diagnosis, they went to a community group, and they asked the community group to pray for them. They laid hands on them and prayed for them, and one month later, they were pregnant, and they had a beautiful baby boy right now, two, a year and a half, two years later. God does that. We had the testimony of people in our congregation who had been diagnosed with a, with a tumor and somebody just goes over and says, God just called me to pray for him. Didn't even know about it. Laid hands on her stomach. Weird, right? Not knowing. Just laid hands on her stomach. Prayed for them. That tumor is gone. Testimony of another person who shattered his shoulder. Was in the doctor's office with a shattered shoulder. Had the thing casted. Was sitting in the room and the nurse in the room says, I'm a Christian. Do you mind if I pray for you? From across the room, she just lifted her hand, didn't even touch him, lifted her hand up and began to pray, and he began to feel warmth down his shoulder, completely healed. He broke the, the, the cast off, 
And his shoulder was healed by Jesus Christ in that moment. Do we believe in the God of the miraculous? I believe we serve a miraculous God. I've stood around the hospital bed and prayed and watched how from the moment we prayed, from that moment forward, the symptoms of sickness reversed and the object of that prayer walked out of the hospital. Ask Elise sometime the story of her brother Troy, who was struck with meningococcal sepsis, a disease that causes death in half of its cases and causes amputation in nearly 90% of those cases. And how they stood around his hospital bed and watched as the gangrene that was visible in his extremities began to reverse as they prayed over him. I believe in a God who delivers. I can testify to a dad who was gripped by alcoholism and upon giving his life fully to Jesus Christ was set free from that addiction instantaneously. I stood and prayed with a girl in my youth group when I was up in Minnesota who had been struggling with an eating disorder for years and years and years. And she looked up at me from the prayer that I prayed over her that she would be delivered with tears in her eyes and she said, I have been set free. I can feel it. I am set free. And never from that day forward did she ever suffer from that affliction. I believe we serve a God who does the miraculous. And I believe that not in a peripheral way. I believe it not in this dismissive way, not in this kind of way, but in a way that causes me to pray earnestly, seek his spirit diligently, and put my faith in his word emphatically. Do you have faith that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do? And I want you to understand, it's not only believing in the God of the miraculous. We have to act on the belief in the God of the miraculous. True faith precedes acts of faith. Steps of faith precede acts of faith. God needs you to be willing to step out in that faith and declare and to move and to believe. You will never step out if you don't believe that God can meet you with the miraculous. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured by seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of this firstborn might not touch him. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down and after they had been encircled for seven days. When you read through each one of those declarations, what you discover is each one of these people said, I believe in this God, and so therefore I step out. I step into that moment. I do what's needed. Moses wandered into the desert because he believed he had a faith in God that he would deliver him from that place. They, they, they moved into a place which was strategically stupid. In the, middle, in the middle of essentially a canyon, blocked on either side by, 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 by a cliff face and, and on the one side by a sea. And they believed that God would still deliver them. And he parted the sea and they walked through. One of my favorite throughout my, my entire life as a kid growing up, whenever I, whenever I reflect on the idea of the story of Jericho, 
can you imagine the stupid faith of the people of Israel? Like, here is, here is their strategic plan. Here is their military plan to take over Jericho. We're going to get up, and we're all going to line up, and we're just going to walk around the city. Next day, we're going to wake up, and we're going to walk around the city. Next day, we're going to get up, and we're going to walk around the city. Seven straight days, they just get up and walk around the city. The people in Jericho are like, these guys are military geniuses. Seventh day, they do it seven times. On the seventh time, they, they blast the horns and they declare the glory of God and the walls come down and they win the battle. You had to get up every single day and you had to walk in that faith. You've got to make sure that you believe in this God who meets in a miraculous way and then step out in faith and see what God can do. One of the reasons we don't see God do what he's doing is because we don't believe that we need him to, and so therefore we don't step out and follow him in it. God can meet you in the miraculous. You just have to believe he can and then step out. Now, I believe that when we learn a lot about the nature of Christian faith, when we reflect on the truth that we need to have faith to see the miraculous... We discover that so very clearly in the reading here. You have to have faith that God is that miraculous God. But I think my next point is probably even more important to bringing clarity to the nature of Christian faith. Yes, your Christian faith is faith to see the miraculous. But we also need to learn that it is faith to stand in the misery. He's not only the God of the miracle, for the faithful. He's still God in the misery for the faithful. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep's and goats destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You realize this is still the faith chapter. You realize he is still talking of people who have faith. What a description. People of faith who made the faith chapter, not seeing the miraculous, still lived by faith. So much so that one of my all-time favorite descriptions, one that just cuts to my heart every time I read it, is these, the world was not worthy of these people. They were so beyond what this world has. That they were, they, the world was not worthy of them. Why did their faith not produce the miraculous. This is so important for us to grasp. God doesn't do the miraculous because of our faith. He chooses in his sovereignty how to respond to our faith. Listen, the, the, the passage doesn't read like this. People with faith walked on dry land, saw the angel of death pass, saw the walls of Jericho fall, and, and, and those who lacked faith were tortured, sawn in tune, were destitute, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 
No, they are those who were marked for having faith too. So much faith that the world was not worthy of them. The point I'm trying to make to you guys today is this, is that faith is not about something. It is about having faith in someone. One of the real problems that I think we have on a fundamental level is we keep seeing faith as a vehicle to something. In whatever way you want to talk about it, in whatever way you want to see it, in whatever you want to frame it, we always talk about faith as a vehicle to something. It is faith to be healed. It is faith to, um, uh, to stand firm. It is faith to whatever. And, and this, is, this is a slight but fundamentally important truth we have to grasp. Faith in God is simply that. We are people of faith. And what we mean by that is we, is we believe that God is who he says he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, period. That no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances are, that is our identity. Faith is not a vehicle to something. Faith is what you are as Christians, period. And the faith we're talking about is that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do. One of the best ways I can illustrate this for you, one of the best ways I, I, I figured out to explain this to you is this. Listen, I am, not a, I am not an Italian to do something. I'm not an Italian so I can do something. I'm not an Italian so that I can eat better food than everybody else. All right? I'm not an Italian so that I can wear cooler clothes than everybody else or drive better cars than everybody else, which it's all true. <laughs> I'm an Italian because I'm an Italian. It's my identity. I can't separate that from anything. It may open doors for certain things, but it is simply what I am. We too often see faith as a vehicle to something, but it is our identity as God's people. We are the people of faith. And there is no way that I can get away from the fact that God, I am convinced, I believe, I, I am defined by God is who he says he is. I am defined by God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so then whatever circumstances I find myself in, I reside in that place, either in the place of deliverance in which God in this place and in this moment shows himself in a miraculous way, or in a place in which suffering and pain come my way. It doesn't change my identity, my belief, who I am, that God is who he says he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It wasn't their lack of faith that caused them to suffer. It was their faith in God that empowered them to suffer. Their faith inspired them to act out. Their, their experience wasn't a parted Red Sea, the passing of the, over of the angel of death, or the falling of the walls at Jericho. But it was to stay faithful and ultimately see the promise of redemption wrote by the work of Jesus Christ. 
Do you have faith only for the miracle? Do you have faith only for the deliverance? Do you have faith only for the dry land and victory? Is, or is your faith what will sustain you through the trials? Stephen Cole, I think, lays out this challenge in, this, in his commentary on this morning's text in a beautiful way. He writes and says, Our text refutes the health and wealth heresy, to say the least. It shows us the fierce opposition that Satan has towards the faithful people of God. It reveals the irrational evil that consumes wicked people to inflict such atrocities on the godly. And it should encourage us to endure rejection, ill treatment, injustice, and even torture and death, if need be. All for the sake of the gospel. Although, like the Hebrews, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin, it may come to that. If we do suffer for the sake of Christ, we will join a great company of God's people down through history of whom the world was not worthy. The Christian faith that we have, the faith in someone, not for something, is a faith that transcends the circumstances of this life, that empowers us to say the reason for my faith is not my comfort, but his glory, to testify to what I believe, that he is who he says he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do I believe in a miraculous, delivering God? Of course. And it's why I pray earnestly and follow after him. But I seek healing and deliverance, not simply for my comfort, but for his glory as a testimony to what I know to be true. And when I must endure the trial, the journey, the misery, I still have my faith in him that he is ultimately my deliverer. I have the faith of Abraham looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Because in that way, I testify to the all-sufficiency of God who carries me and brings me to his glory. I believe that this is the challenge before us. Before us individually, but also before us collectively as Mercy Hill Church. It is for us to embrace the dualistic nature of true biblical faith. A faith that believes for the miracle. A faith that doesn't discount the miraculous, powerful, sovereign God that has shown himself throughout time to respond to the faith of his children with the power of his majesty. I don't care if, if it is disease or fear or trauma or depression or addiction or rejection and affliction. Our God can and does and will visit our faith with his redemption. But until that time, whether here or when we enter the city whose foundation is built by God, we have to maintain a faith in God through the struggle because even in the darkness, he remains our light. Even in the storm, he remains our anchor. Even in the fear, he remains our comfort. That is the faith of those who have gone on before. And that is the faith that testifies to the greatness of our God. 
This morning, the question is the same. Do you have faith in someone or for something? It is time to lean into the biblical faith that God is who he says he is, and he will do for you what he has said he will do. Each one of us has come to this place in this moment from somewhere different. Some of you today may have been received this week a, a, a diagnosis which has caused fear and anxiety for you. Some of you may be here this morning dealing with different trauma in your life, dealing with different addictions in your life, dealing with different afflictions in your life. God is still the God of the Bible. And the question to you is, do you believe that he is that God and will do for you what he said he will do? To stand in the miraculous and hang on to the anchor and wait and see what God is going to do. Every one of us is at a different place. But every one of us are called to be people of that faith. It is what it is to be a Christian.